made this graphic for us. I thought it was going to be a generic city graphic, and I started looking, and it's got actually, it's like us. That's like a little version of, of who we are. And I'm excited because for the next month, um, this little simple graphic is going to be behind uh, me up here saying, don't forget. We don't exist for the gratification and glorification of this place. We exist for the gratification and glorification of God in that place. We are here to make an impact on BG and beyond. And so if you're from Perrysburg, don't be like, well, I can check out for a month. Um, (laughs) Doesn't quite work like that. We are here to make a rippling impact in this region. And so uh, my hope is that this will be not only uh, challenging, but will be inspiring. That that will not only be a time where we're convicted of the things we're not doing, but we'll celebrate the things that we are doing. Because this community is doing an incredible job of reaching out, an incredible job of taking care of the vulnerable around us um, in so many ways. And so what we are going to do is double down on that. We're going to look at the truth of Scripture and say, where can we even be better? Which is why we got 50 kids on that tree when we had 33 last year. And why next year, if we do this right, we're going to have 75 kids on that tree. And as we grow in our obedience, we will grow in our impact. And so what we're going to talk about is how do we use our days to display Jesus for BG? If we exist to know Jesus and make him known, then what's our calling card? How do we do that? I will argue that radical, fearless love is the way that we make Jesus known around us. Ultimately, we honor God not just with our head and our hearts, the knowledge we gain, the the way it makes us feel, the the growing personal relationship. We also honor God through our hands. The outflow of what goes on in our head and our hearts comes to our hands, and we actually have to live it. And so uh, next week uh, is International Orphan Sunday. International Orphan Sunday is kind of widely recognized. Churches all over the the world participate. So next Sunday, a lot of churches will be doing that. We prefer to be a leader in this area, so we're going to do it this week, okay? And then at the end of the month, uh, the Heart Gallery will come through, which you saw here last year if you were part of this. This is a big display of of area children, Uh, their faces, their names, and we'll put that out in the foyer. And so today we'll talk about it, and then at the end of the month, you're going to get a chance to see it firsthand And hopefully those bookends will be something for us that we can really latch onto and realize that we all have a role to play, some big, some small, and yet we all have a role to play in all the vulnerable, in helping all the marginalized, in being about um, glorifying God through the way that we love others. So today we're going to talk about uh, defense, offense, and then who we really are. So first defense, Isaiah uh, chapter 1. Through the prophet it says, when you come to worship me, Who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgust me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, those are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They're a burden to me. I can't stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Then verse 17, it says, learn to do good. Seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. That's a sort of a heavy way to start a series. It's a heavy way to start a month, but it's an appropriate heaviness because we have to see what's at play here. So as we talk about defense, we know the defense wins championships, right? You've heard that. But fundamentally, defense is reactive, you can try to, to, to be proactive on defense, but you're really reacting to what's happening around you. 
God is after our defense, our defense of those who cannot defend themselves. God is after our reactionary protection for those who can't protect themselves. You go through uh, scripture and you go through the whole of it and, and this theme comes out that's called the quartet of the vulnerable. We've talked about it before here. The poor, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant. These are, uh, in, in the biblical times, the most vulnerable populations were singled out and, and God made clear through his word that these are the people that we are to be protecting. And that changes as time goes by. It changes the, the quartet of the vulnerable. It might be different in our context. It is in another context. It might be different in 2017 than it was in 17 B.C. It, it, it changes, but the idea is the same. Who is vulnerable in our society? Who cannot protect themselves and requires our protection? So if we're after justice, as the scripture says, seek justice, what does that mean? That means we need to seek to repair wrongs. Because we've talked about before, justice work is the restorative action of taking something wrong and making it right again. Help the oppressed. What does this mean? You ever go through something and have somebody um, send thoughts your way? You know how that feels? And no shame on the person sending, right? Sometimes it's awkward and you don't know what to say and you go, well, I'm sending thoughts your way. Does that help? The person who's suffering, the person in a trial, the person who's grieving, probably not. Is it singing louder praise songs? Is that how we help the oppressed? The ancient is not the only time where this has been an issue. The time of Isaiah is not the only time where uh, the people of God, the faithful of God, would come together and through kind of righteous activity, attempt to feel good about who we are and what we're doing. It persists today, right? It persists that there are, there are times, uh, I would admit, personally, and so it's up to us to admit collectively, but there are times that we come together and, and this thing we do on a Sunday morning sort of feels like our work for God. And yet he's saying, I, I, don't want your, I don't want your celebrations and your pious meetings and your solemn assemblies. I don't, I don't want that if it's not joined by the other. Bono from the rock group U2 once uh, said, get up off your knees and become the answer to your prayer. Which is that so many of us are like, well, I'll pray for that when sometimes the solution's right in front of us. I'll pray about a way to help the orphans in our region well, you can just pick one, and you can volunteer to be part of the solution. Like, you can do it. And so, so his point was not prayer is bad. Prayer is active and powerful and should be first upon us. And yet, his point is sometimes we're praying for things that we are the answer to the prayer. We just haven't gotten that word yet. How, how do I, God, I pray that you put out the house fire next to me. No, grab a hose, right? Be part of the solution. I circled the words in in. This passage that were these kind of celebratory parade, ceremony, gifts, celebrations, festivals, all these good things that God was, was rejecting. And then you, you compare them to verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of the orphans, fight for the rights of widows. And you get a sense for what God is after. I would argue that God cares more about what happens in the trenches than what happens on the parade route after the war is won. God cares more about what's happening in the trenches than he cares about what's going on in the parade after everybody's done. God's more worried about what we're doing with the problem than how we're going to 
pat ourselves on the back and celebrate it later. Because we never get there. If we're, all we're doing is celebrating, we're never actually fighting the war. I have a history degree. My undergraduate study was history. I, I kind of prioritized African-American history. So that was 1830-ish to civil rights movement. And that's kind of, if you ever wonder why you get so many uh, illustrations from that period of history, now you know. And so I studied a ton of it, read a lot of it, and a few years ago this book came out that um, opened me up to brand new ideas, things that, I mean, I'd spent hours and hours and hours reading, studying, writing all about this stuff, and I'd never run across a book um, that was so illuminating on the whole process, the, the experience of an African-American, especially in the time of slavery. And the book was called The Half Has Never Been Told by a guy named Edward Baptist. And it caused me this week to consider, I went back to that book because I was considering the oppression uh, in our country during the, the time of slavery. And that was such a clear oppression as we look back. We're like, well, it's super clear. This was not okay. So what, what can we draw from that? And this book uh, that Edward Baptist wrote was really clear in the way it walked through um, sort of the experience of an African stolen from home put on a ship, and brought here. And what I didn't realize, like in all my study, I never had to consider how did that person get from like Ghana to Virginia to Mississippi? It turns out like there was an actual uh, tortuous process. And, and then when somebody, when they, we actually had the markets, imagine that we had markets for people. When the markets in Virginia, when someone was sold, when a group of men were sold, they were uh, chained, manacled, right? They had a chain on the wrist, chain on the ankle, and a chain around their neck. And then that chain was tied to the person in front and a person behind. And how did they get them from Virginia to a plantation in Mississippi? They walked them. 700 miles over mountains, in the heat. They gave them enough food to try to keep them alive, but not a, an ounce more. And these were not like really nice fitting chains. These are heavy iron, rub the skin off your ankle in the first mile kind of things. And I was, I'm reading this book a couple years ago and I'm just horrified that A, I didn't know this. I studied this, I didn't know. And B, none of us know this. I started thinking about this. The, the 700 miles, you do the math, it's a million and a half steps. It would take months How do you help the oppressed in that situation? How would we help the oppressed? If that was reality today, how would we help them? The, the children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High, made in His image, are being paraded 700 miles in those conditions. What would we do? How would we help? Like, like would shoes, would, would that be good enough for us? Would shoes help those people? Would better meals, a little bit larger provision, would improving the roads be better? I mean, maybe, but what it, what it told me, what it occurred to me as I tried to compare that to what we deal with now when we talk about vulnerable people and oppressed people and how we work on these things is often we find these solutions that are helpful, but actually are not driving anything towards healing. Like the only real way to help people that were in that state of oppression was to remove slavery as an institution. That was the only way to help them. Help them actually helping and healing were the same thing. But we could have made ourselves feel better with like, well, I just want to make their lives a little better. No. None of us would say that's okay. 
And so then we have to do the hard work of looking at our modern circumstances, at our modern oppression, at our modern places where we're, we're running into these challenges where people are being um, misused and abused. And we have to go, do I want to help or do I want to heal? Because helping is good. Do what you can. Healing is better. So often we do things that make oppression more bearable without ever addressing the oppression itself. As Christians, sometimes we focus on making oppression more bearable for people in it without looking at what are those things that could actually heal this and remove the oppression itself. So what does it mean to help? What does it mean to defend people like God has asked us to defend? What does it mean to fight for people that need our support and our protection? Like in the orphan crisis, if we're talking about the orphan crisis today, what does it look like to fight, to defend, to protect? Because if our ultimate goal is anything less than there being no more orphans, then we're buying shoes for slaves. If our ultimate goal is that there's no, is anything less than there should be no more orphans in this region, that the church should bound together, that we should get other churches involved, that we should rally, that we should figure this out, and we'd all play a role, and we would have a goal that there would be no one left. And you go to the Wood County Family Court, and they'd be like, no, we got nothing. Lucas County, no, we got no one. Every time we have a kid come in the system, there's a church, like, we got a waiting list. That should be our goal, that there's no one left. Anything less is going, oh, we'll help, but, you know, life happens. The goal should be no more. The goal is homes for the homeless, family for the abandoned, no more kids forgotten, nothing less. There's nothing less than that for our goal. Defend the cause of the orphan. And here's the good news. There's a thousand roles to play. Because as soon as we start preaching this, and I've done this before in other contexts, and and you you can almost see anxiety rising up in people going, look, I I can't have kids in my house right now. You don't know where I am in my life. You're asking me to take on kids? And and I always start and say, no, no, no. Unless the answer for you is yes, right? Some of you, the answer is yes. That God has been telling you this for a while, and today you're going, oh gosh, this is it again. Maybe I'll do this now. There's a thousand roles to play. You can be a cheerleader. You can literally be somebody who, when somebody who is fostering a kid needs something, and, and they got their hands full, they call you and they go, hey, can you go pick up some milk for us? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I'm here for you. First call, anytime you need it. You can be somebody who is a babysitter, like you have to be certified for this, and you can be a respite provider so that when um, couple A, who's fostering four kids, comes to you and goes, man, we really need a night out, you can go, I don't know where you're going to go, but we got your kids, because we're certified, and they're safe with us, and you're free to go. Ask anybody, I mean, this, this community's done this long enough and has enough people that have done it, ask them, how does that feel to have somewhere to go to say, thank you, uh, we'll be back, maybe, you know, this is... <laughs> This matters. But it's on us to choose. If there's a thousand ways that we can be a part of it, then it's on us to choose one. And if it's the the lowest level of inclusion in that, awesome. You know why we have uh, the kids today? Because this is the lowest level that we can get in on. And it matters to these kids. It matters to the families. It matters. And this is step one. And the hope is that as you take the child home and you pray, as we pray for Haley M. in our house for the next month, the hope is that that would help us understand what our greater role is. So the prayer is not only how do we help Haley M., the prayer is, God, how do we get into a place where Haley M. isn't on that tree next year? Where we call and say, hey, can we have more? And they go, actually, no, we have less. 
We will defend those that society has tossed away. We will react and we will work to heal brokenness. That's defense. That's reactive. Now let's play offense. Let's get proactive. Another uplifting uh, passage I'm going to read you, Psalm 10. Psalm 10 says, O Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? The wicked arrogantly hunt down the poor. Let them be caught in the evil they plan for others, for they brag about their evil desires. They praise the greedy. They curse the Lord. The wicked are too proud to seek God. They seem to think that God is dead, yet they succeed in everything they do. They don't see your punishment awaiting them. They sneer at their enemies. They think nothing bad will happen to us. We will be free of trouble forever. Their mouths are full of cursing, lies, threats. Trouble and evil are on the tips of their tongues. They lurk in ambush in the villages. They wait to murder innocent people. They're always searching for the helpless. Like lions crouched in hiding, they wait to pounce on the helpless. Like hunters, they capture the helpless, drag them away in their nets. The helpless victims are crushed. They fall beneath the strength of the wicked. And the wicked think, God isn't watching. He's closed his eyes and he won't see what we do. And so the psalmist says, Arise, O Lord. Punish the wicked, O God. Do not ignore the helpless. Why do the wicked get away with despising God? They think God will never call us to account, but God, you see the trouble and the grief they cause. You take note and punish them. The helpless put their trust in you. You defend the orphans. Break the arms of these wicked, evil people. Go after them until the last one is destroyed. The Lord is king forever and ever. The godless nations will vanish from the land. And now verse 17. Lord, you know the hopes of the helpless. Surely you will hear their cries and comfort them. You will bring justice to the orphans, to the oppressed, so mere people can no longer terrify them. The psalmist lays into the wicked here. And if you read the whole of scripture, you get the sense that there's a special venom reserved for those who take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable and the poor and the young. We talk about offense, but this is offensive stuff to God. God is not okay with uh, us taking advantage of vulnerable people. And in a rich country, we have to be careful, right? We can always, we can say, well, that's them, but it's not them. We did the exercise a few months back where everybody looked at their neighbor's t-shirt to see where it was made. And then the question is asked, now that you know where it's made, do you know if a kid made it for eight cents an hour? Or, you know, is your t-shirt oppressive? To which the answer usually is, I don't know, but probably, probably. Mine was made in Mauritius. I checked this morning. Mauritius is an island uh, that wealthy South Africans vacation on. Odds that my shirt was made, like, sustainably with living wages, not real high. It's oppressive. Am I going to make all my own clothes? I don't know. But I should wrestle with that. That should, that should do something in me. The Holy Spirit turns in me and says, you know what? Don't be okay with just the way it is. Because that's how we get to where we are. Stats would tell you that 60% of Christian men, but it isn't just a men's issue. Increasingly, it's not just a men's issue. 60% of Christian men, on some level or another, engaged with pornography. It's an issue. And the issue is this, that where many will tell me and have told me, not hurting anybody, no one's business but mine, don't worry about it. That when demand increases for something, the market reacts with greater supply. So we do simple market economics and we go, when demand increases, supply increases. And as demand for illicit images grows, supply grows. With supply in a certain industry comes greater abuse, 
greater trafficking, broken souls. It's not fun to talk about. It's not easy to think about. But because someone in Northwest Ohio clicks, someone in Romania becomes abducted. A 14-year-old gets taken and put into an industry she wants nothing to do with because there's demand. That's not easy to look at. It's not easy to deal with. It's not easy to... But that's modern oppression happening every day. And the stats would say that 60% of the men in this room are on some level contributing. That's not to guilt you, but maybe if the Spirit wants to convict you, that's all you need to hear. As a dad of daughters, nothing horrifies me more. Why does that matter today, especially? Because you look at statistics and... California recently released some data from what they had done in in rescuing trafficking victims just in California. This is not Eastern Europe. This is not South America. This is not where it gets really dicey. In California, different jurisdictions, 50 to 80% of the the young girls that have been rescued from trafficking were foster kids. 50 to 80% came from the foster system. Demand increases. Supply must increase. And where does that supply come from? Haley M. She's on the tree, and she's that much more likely to find abuse, to find neglect. So the question becomes, am I responsible? If you are aware, then you are responsible. And we can do better. The psalmist pivots, right? He talks about the wicked, he talks about the oppression, and he pivots to God in verse 17 and 18. Lord, you know the hopes of the helpless. Surely you will hear their cries and comfort them. You'll bring justice to the orphans and the oppressed so more people can no longer, mere people can no longer terrify them. You will bring justice and hope. That's a proactive thing. Going in on the offensive is to, to get in front of the problem so that people can no longer be terrified in it. That we can get out in front of the problem. Yes, we need to deal with the issues that are in front of us, but we can get out in front of them too and, and erase the things that are creating the oppression in the first place. Defense is like ER triage. Man, we need that. We need somebody in there saying, he goes to surgery, he goes this way, she goes that way. That matters. Offense is preventative. You know who is less likely to have a child end up in the foster system? Someone with a deep network of community. Over and over, you talk to people who deal with uh, poverty alleviation. And they say the number one thing these people need is a deep community network. That's what they need. Community is not about defensively growing the church. It's about going on offense to extend light one household at a time. Like a measure of success for our community groups, what, how do you define success in a community group? Like one measure could be how many people are in our homes from that quartet of the vulnerable? How many widows and orphans? How many immigrants? How many oppressed people are in my community group? Because when we relaunch them, we call them community groups, we said for a reason. They weren't home groups because it's not about what's happening in your home. It's about what's happening in the community. Because what we didn't want is to create these walled gardens, which is really common in, in Christianity. We create a walled garden, and we come together, and we look at the pretty flowers together, but it's a wall, and no one can get in. And what we said is we don't want a walled garden. We want an open door and a seat at the table. 
And we want there to be an expectancy in every community group that we're all out there looking. And when you meet somebody at the diner and your waitress, she's got a bruise and she doesn't want to tell you where it came from. And, and you're figuring, maybe I eat here all the time and I, that's new. And I know she's in this relationship and she mentioned it wasn't great. I'm putting some things together. The idea is that your community group is ready with an open chair. So when you invite her on Tuesday night to come have dinner at your house, okay. And then relationship gets built. And as community gets built and a network gets built and then healing can be built, it all tumbles out of that. The number one thing we can do, the number one way that we can be for BG is to have open seats at our table. The greatest weapon against uh, radical Islamic terrorism. When we talk about radical Islamic terrorism in the world today, water for Ishmael in Toledo is doing the greatest work I can imagine against radical Islamic terrorism. They take in immigrants, refugees, people who have moved here for various reasons, some to flee war, some because they, uh, husband gets a job and wife is here with him and got nowhere to be and nothing to do and doesn't know the language and doesn't have any skills. Others of them are, are fleeing war. A Iraqi attorney comes here and his credentials don't transfer and so he needs help finding a job as like an unskilled laborer, even though He's way more educated than me. Water for Ishmael in Toledo is doing this. They're bringing these people in. They're training them. They're giving them uh, English lessons. They're taking care of their kids for free, basically. They're loving them, loving them, loving them, loving them, loving them sacrificially. And what they find is every couple of years, they have a story or two to tell about someone who was raised in Islam who could have gone the other way when they were rejected by our society. Instead, they, they actually come to Christ. And they have these stories, and they can't even celebrate them out loud because the family would really not be real happy. But these people would say, you love me so much, so sacrificially, I'll listen to this thing about your Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit intervenes and lives are transformed and eternities are changed because this group in Toledo is radically loving immigrants. And so the greatest weapon against radical Islamic terrorism is radical Christian love. But that works in every different scenario. Everything we deal with, the greatest weapon against homelessness is a proactive, radical Christian community. The greatest weapon against the orphan crisis is proactive, radical Christian action on the behalf of children. Here's some stats. More than uh, 23,000 children will age out of the U.S. foster care system every year. 23,000. After reaching the age of 18, 20% of the children who were in foster care one in five of those 23,000 become instantly homeless. 18th birthday, homeless. Only one out of every two foster kids who age out of the system will have some form of gainful employment by the age of 24. Half. There's less than a 3% chance for children who have aged out of the foster care system to earn a college degree at any point in their life. Seven out of ten girls who, are out of the foster, who age out of the foster care system will become pregnant before the age of 21. You know the best way to keep kids out of the foster care system? Is to take care of the kids that are in the foster care system. You put all those stats together, you put, and you, what you see is this is a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a self-fulfilling recipe for more. That seven out of those ten young women that age out are going to be pregnant before 21. Only half of those, if even are going to have any gainful employment. A fifth of them are going to be homeless. And where do you think those children are going to end up? Back in the system where they can repeat and repeat and repeat. So the first thing we need to do is take care of the kids in the foster care system. The second thing we have to do is build strong community outreach that doesn't just strengthen our community, strengthens the community. 
It's keeping an open chair and an invitational mindset. This is something you guys are incredible at. Having an invitational mindset of always on the lookout for someone who might need, who someone who might be connected, to someone who might need help, who keep it up. Third thing is then we can address the peripheral issues surrounding generational poverty that lead to the foster care system even being necessary. The poor are not a problem to solve, but a people to join. Eugene Peterson said, the poor are not a problem to solve, but a people to join. We don't need to get us in a room and think of some great ideas on how to fix it. We need to get us in the community and start building relationships and watch how God fixes it that way. So there are ways to be practical. There's a table out in the back to your right, and that will be, uh, we'll have somebody there ready to answer any questions you have about what it means to be part of the solution, the healing part. Four C's. You can be a champion, a companion, a coach, a cheerleader. There's four levels to interact, to be like, you know what, we're not all in, but we want to be sort of in. That's fine. Or I don't know if I'm in at all, but I'd love more information. Awesome. We got someone there who has answers for you, ways to connect you. If you are interested in being part of that solution, out the doors and you will find them. Why does this matter though? Like who are we really and how does this hit home for us personally? If it wasn't enough that you hear the stats and you think of the, the world outside of us and the way that brokenness is, is just kind of everywhere, think about our own personal journey. Romans eight fifteen through 17. Paul writes, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. So we call him Abba, Father, Daddy. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we were to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. God didn't send Jesus to help us, but to heal us and set us free. And when we consider that about our own lives, about our own adoption, God didn't just pat us on the back and help us along and maybe make our oppression more bearable. God dove into our oppression and ended it. He didn't come to help. He came to heal. We were adopted and rescued. He knew the hopes of the helpless, and he heard their cries. He heard, and he sent Christ. God went on offense first. I will proactively end this. I will give you victory while the war is still going. And so then we become the adopted ones. We are the adopted sons and daughters of the Creator, who are then sent to bring the good news of adoption to all physically and spiritually. And the physical world that we inhabit is a reflection of the spiritual reality going on within us. And so when we are acting out our salvation, it is a picture of the spiritual reality going on in our hearts. This is not someone else's problem. This is our problem. These are not someone else's children. These are our children. Children made in the image of God, like you, like me, like my biological kids, that by the stroke of circumstances and the luck of the draw, they didn't get born into a house like mine. Not that we got it all together. But through circumstance and generational poverty and a thousand different things that go the wrong direction, they end up on our tree. And so we first change our language. There is no them. When we say that around here, there is no them. It's us. There's only us. They are of us. They are part of us. Those kids are our kids. And then it's on us to act together because no one family can do it alone. So together, each of us have to be open to the Holy Spirit. 
What is the nudge you're getting today? How can you be a part of this? Then we have to take on those specific roles. We have to actually be obedient to what the Spirit is inviting us to do and take those roles on to cover these kids because we can make an incredible difference for God, for justice, for BG. So, as an easy application, I've already said, I'll say it again, we got 50 of these this year. Real children, tiny souls swimming through a broken world. Our job is to enter into those waters and begin to fight the oppression, to begin to pray for the child by name in our homes, to begin to ask God to make clear what our role might be in the larger scope. And so our two challenges are, one, every kid gets covered. Every kid. Two, every heart in the room is then asking how we can be part of healing on a larger scale how we can for BG, but really for the glory of God and to be obedient to his word, how do we find a way to heal and bring wholeness and hope to a really dark place? And if we can do that together, all in, what we will see will be more inspirational than any sermon, more exciting than any praise and worship, the celebrations, the festivals, the I want to be around in the day where the county says, hey, we don't have any kids to actually give out right now because they're all taken. And if we can dream that together, then our job is to go and become the answer to that prayer as best we can, each and every one of us, to make it happen. So I want to invite you to stand with us. We're going to continue with communion, which is the way... God instituted, Jesus gave us this way of remembering that it took his body represented in the bread and it took his filled blood represented in the cup for us to be whole, for us to be adopted. And he took on the penalty to make us heirs, to make us sons and daughters of the Most High. And so when we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, we remember God so loved us that he sent Christ for us. And he calls us his children. And so as we take it, we remember we are overjoyed in the midst of a kind of a heavy thing to think about, that if God can do that for us, as we remember that, we ask the question, what can we do for others? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit would be crystal clear to everyone in this room. Father, I've personally sat in a message like this and tried to dodge the answer. And yet, Lord, you are clear. We are responsible. You are clear that your children, your creation, made in your image, are suffering. And it's on us to be a part of the solution. So I pray, Spirit, do your work. Pray for open hearts, ready hands, a community that is sold out to sacrificial love. We pray that our dream, Father, our dream of there being no children available in the system would be a reality worth chasing. So God, give us favor and wind in our sails. Father, give us the push where we need it. Make the path straight. 
And when we act, Father, we pray that it is not righteousness to us, but glory to you, that we would be here for you. And as a result, Bowling Green and beyond, they would see you through us. Thank you for your son. We pray in his name. Amen.